to be charitable, Germany has a, shall we say, strained relationship with war films. And I mean that in a couple of ways. As the Axis power in a couple of world wars, German soldiers are often and accurately depicted as the bad guys. And that's fair any time the side you fight for wages a protracted campaign of genocide. But as we consume more and more war films, the German side of the story has become more prevalent. And it is our duty as your purveyor of war film knowledge to interrogate this. Das Boot is a film that removes the jackboots and leather capes, the death camps, and even Hitler in telling its German war story. That's because this film is less about World War II specifically, and more about the nature of war generally. The U-96 is our home for most of the film. Its crew is unmistakably blue-collar. These men aren't especially political. There's the one ardent Nazi officer, but he's ostracized by the majority of the crew who are either indifferent or openly anti-Nazi like the captain. Placing us aboard a German submarine, and a crippled one at that, underscores this useful narrowing of focus because it winnows the broader German wolfpack strategy against the Allied convoy defense, and all of the moralizing that that invites, toward a more visceral and simple question of survival. And the answer to that question is so very much in doubt for much of the film. The initial hunt is charged with excitement, and when the first torpedoes hit home, you understand why submarine films are so popular. The anticipation of shooting a torpedo and then the ecstasy of waiting for it to hit is exquisite. The counterattack they experience in the aftermath is torturous. It's one thing to nail the feeling, but Das Boot is a war film so famous, so celebrated, so definitive of its genre within a genre of submarine-slash-war films that its title has become synonymous with another kind of quality, its attention to detail. The models, the interior mock-ups, and the sets are perfect. Every dim light, squeaky valve, and foggy gauge feels textured and real. The compositions bounce from static to dynamic, but never not claustrophobic. There are many reasons why Dust Boot is the best of its genre. We'll share many of ours, but we're confident you'll find many of your own. There's a limit somewhere. We can only take so much pressure. On today's Friendly Fire, as we submerge with one of the greatest war films of all time, Wolfgang Peterson's Das Boot. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast with excellent prospects for drowning. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. Boy, this is a long movie. <laughs> they use the word they use the word drowning to mean sinking. Right. And I'm not sure yeah. whether that's a translation strangeness or whether that's really how they refer to sinking. That ship is about to drown. Well, you know those nautical guys always they use words like in a kind of a slightly different way a lot of the time are you, ta- are you talking about the people that have sailboats the off of the off of san francisco bay is that the nautical type yeah. You're talking about? yeah they call them sheets we call them ropes 
Are you a boat dad if you're an older U-boat captain? Does that qualify? <laughs> Does this qualify as a boat dad movie? The thing is, that, uh, in this movie, like the old, the old salt-bitten U-boat captains are like 28, 29, 30 years old. God, those are city miles on those guys, though. <laughs> they really are. Oof. They really are. I was reading about the casting of this movie, and uh, one of the things that was very important for Wolfgang Peterson was to cast people from all over the like parts of the world that Germany controlled at this point to reflect, quote, the diversity of the Third Reich, which is a turn of phrase that I laughed at for 10 minutes when I read it. Yeah, there are a ton of accents in German, though, and I think that's reflected in, in the performances that we get here. Well, also, it's just a movie full of white dudes, but it's not confusing who they are, you know? Like, there have been so many movies that we've watched where everybody's basically wearing the same clothes, and it's and you start to forget which actor is which. And these guys do really have differentiated characters in a way that I thought was impressive, given the challenges of, of that. That's what happens when you throw in a couple of gingers change up the ages a little bit and then you get your uh, your Brooklyn German in there too all of a sudden you filled out the whole bench there's the German from Mexico right right yeah. Mex- Mexican German guy <laughs> yeah you gotta have one of those he's the naziest German and he's a, and he's Mexican German well, that's what that's what they say he's always uh, glistening and I think that that is a property of a very Nazi German performance in these movies. Oh, they have a waxy finish. He's like uh, he's like the guy in the Indiana Jones film. He was also always a little dewy. He was literally made of wax, right. as we see at the end. Yeah, he got too close to the flame at the end. Yeah. <laughs> see what happens. I think also if you're on a submarine and you keep you keep your tie knotted all the way up at the top, you're gonna you're yeah. gonna perspire more yeah. than the average guy. It was really interesting how the captain just reverted to like like a flannel and a and a cardigan sweater the second they were out on on the water like he was kind of the most buttoned up when he was on shore right he wasn't shithouse drunk in the brothel he uh he really kept kept his wits about him but then the second they get out in the water he's just he's just lounge dad yeah so buttoned up on shore lounge dad at sea that's how i'm living the vibe of that brothel <laughs> scene was incredible to me. It was it was not really fun seeming. It seemed dangerous in a way. It seemed yeah. like we often get like the depiction of German soldiers toward the end of the war as like losing their losing their sense of confidence that they're gonna they're gonna win this thing. But we rarely see what they do with their time and their attitude when they know the war is is going to be lost, right? And this feels like this feels like where they're putting their energy into just getting hammered and barfing into their public restroom. Well, it's like if we die of alcohol poisoning tonight, at least we don't have to get in that fucking tub tomorrow. Yeah. What's interesting about this movie and about that that observation, Adam, is that it, this is set before the U.S. has even entered World War II. So, so it wasn't the end of the war by any means, but... It but was the end of these guys' lives, though, and they knew it, in statistically. The, at the beginning of the Atlantic War, right, which, I mean, the subs started attacking convoys and stuff, like, in, in 1938, immediately after war was declared. And for the first couple of years, the British and the, the, whole, the, the way they ran their convoys, and at first, not even convoys, uh, they were totally unprepared, 
because in World War One, submarines couldn't do this thing where they go out into the middle of the Atlantic and just sail around for a month. You know, submarines were technology didn't allow them to do that. And so the original first two years of the war. That was the war where they were cutting trenches into the sea. Well, and yeah, that's right. They were the submarines, you know, they would go under, they'd go six and a half feet out and there's weight there. Mm hmm. So the convoys were unescorted, they were unarmed, and the first two years of the war, and, they, and, and it's, it's clear in Das Boot that, the, that these old timers are thinking back two years ago yeah. when they would go out on patrol and sink 12 boats, or 12 ships, rather. And right. this, this, so fall of 41... And not only are, th- are their hit rates that well, but they're like, they're not being counterattacked right, at all. Right. It's no, easy. No danger, easy pickings. They just go out and have their fun. That's, it, it's such a great point that you're making because the way that they treat being counterattacked is almost as if it's magic. Yeah. Like, I cannot believe this destroyer knows where we are. Well, and, and, they, and they see sonar used for the first time. Yeah. And they know what it is, but it, is it's startling and terrifying and that actually happened at this stage of the war the british were like they 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 figured it all out and 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 the captain says it multiple times like oh these aren't the you know they've figured it out basically yeah, yeah. and yeah, these aren't the bozos that we started this war fighting right so so that's what uh, that's this tension in the movie through the whole thing where you just you watch these guys the war the us isn't even in the war yet we think of it as being like nazi heyday I think this is a great double feature with the key if you can if you've got 18 hours to spare because they are literally set <laughs> right at the same time as each other. You know, the key makes the case that it is like the most harrowing and terrible time for uh, the British sailors, but it's 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 really it's really no fun on either side, and and I think that that's something that I reflected on a lot. Like, oh yeah, like this, it was no walk in the park for anybody. Did they have crabs in the key also? <laughs> they didn't talk about There were about a lot of full butt shots in that movie. Yeah. Eyebrow, eyebrow crabs. Yeah. I was eating a lot of ass. He was the only millennial in the Third Reich. That's gotta be tough. You're hot bunking in the, in the submarine. You know you're getting whatever everyone else has. Fleas or bed bugs. Oof. But I don't think you can get crabs from sitting on a toilet seat, Adam. I think that's really no. I think you heard, you heard that in a, in a health class, but I don't think that's how it works. Oh. here's here's my note about this. Yeah, I'd like to hear your crab. Note. Like before you before you board the sub, uh, maybe shave it down first. You know, <laughs> all the way. Yeah, that's my piece of advice. You want it to look like one of those vaselined up torpedoes. That way, the crabs can't take hold, and I mean all of it. Shave the eyebrows too. But you know, you got no secrets from the other guys on the sub. So, so the first yeah. thing they're going to notice is, in, you shaved right before we left, mm-hmm. and that's going to—I think think that's going to be received in a lot of different ways by your bunkmates. I think the thing that's really going to blow minds is when my pube beard grows faster than my face beard by a lot, <laughs> and is a lot redder. <laughs> Bumping off of this topic, uh, I, I although this is a three and a half hour movie, I did not find it to be super long. I mean, I had to take a little bit of a popcorn break. Yeah, but we've watched two hour movies that were uh, that were harder slogs. Well, and the length feels like it's in service of something too. You know, like the those moments where they're first out there, like just like cannot wait to engage the enemy. 
and it's it just feels interminable like the the emotion of that is something that the film forces you to connect with in a way that I don't think it could if those scenes were just like you know brief you know illustrations of people saying boy I can't wait to fight somebody yeah like time is an essential component of tension right and this is one of those films that really extrudes that tension quite extrudes a bit extrudes it yeah just extruding tension yeah Ooh. like like so much taffy <laughs> when did you guys first see this movie uh it was high school for me i watched it as a part of my german foreign language class in which you would get uh credits for experiencing german culture in either like media or festival or food or whatever like you'd have to get you'd have to accrue 20 or something culture credits so you just listen to falco albums and yeah you'd get points for that and and uh i would adam watch this movie and then wore later hose into school for a week i would say that i watched das boot every weekend in order to get these credits (laughs) (laughs) and i did not right my german teacher hated me right i can imagine i sympathize i I can understand when people dislike me, but I don't often understand when people hate me. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't inspire strong emotions in people. Right. <laughs> uh, when did you see it, Ben? I think I saw it uh, in my depression college year, like when I when I would just go rent seven movies at the at the movie rental place. Hopefully, they were all so, in black and white in German to to yeah go, go along with your feelings of. I, I wanted, uh, yeah, I want a lot of verisimilitude with my experience of the world. So this, but I don't think I'd seen it since then. It, it, it was, uh, it was essentially a new film to me. Those were both uh, the hundred and twenty-minute cuts, right? Or I mean, you you didn't want there. The, yeah, this the, three-hour thing didn't exist then. The classic two VHS thick pack. Didn't the this come store. out in eighty-one? But didn't the didn't the director's recut come out in? Like 2007 or something? Oh, well, yeah, but and I would assume in talking to anyone else I know in life that that meant that they had not seen it in college. But, of course, 2007, you yeah. were just starting college, right? Uh, yeah, so I think I think this, this may be the exact version that was available when I first saw it. So What I like about this movie is that you can find a version for you, whether, <laughs> whether it's the... The two-hour version, which I know there to be, the three-hour and 30-minute version, which we watched, uh, there's a longer, I think, four- or five-hour version, and then there's the chopped-up miniseries version of this film. It's the Blade Runner of, of German submarine movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there is a version that ends, and you find out that he was a submarine the whole time. Mm. I watched it in the movie theater. Awesome. Whoa. When it came out. And it was uh, it was awe inspiring, and in a way, I've I've spent the rest of my life kind of with Das Boot as a or Das Boot Boot Boot. How do you how are we gonna say it? Das Boot, Das Boot. I think it's Das Boot. Well, there's right? no there's no umlaut, so it won't be uh. right. Das Boot. And what struck us about it at the time, and I think the like reading the criticism at the time, and 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 soaking it up in the world at the uh, of its release was it was i think widely regarded as the first 
portrayal of German soldiers as real human beings and protagonists of a film that was really that a film that was intended for a American audience, even though it was in German. And having watched all these war movies in doing this show, I feel like there are a lot of war movies throughout the, the last 60, 70 years that have portrayed German soldiers as human beings. And I remember watching it and feeling like it was the first time I'd ever been asked to consider that Nazis were just regular people doing the regular war job uh, and, and walking out of the theater like, like uh, transformed by that or moved by it. That, and, and it was the height of the Cold War. So you always, particularly I was 13, 14, 13, you know, you get that that problem of kind of conflating the Nazis with the Soviets that we that we did there in the eighties, where it was like, well, we had one bad guy and it, it turned into kind of another bad guy, and we just sort of <laughs> changed the insignia on our bad guy out- outfits when we're playing guns out in the forest. But it's sort of the same, right? So it really it really had a uh, like a social impact. Early in this film's development, there were there was a point where Robert Redford was attached to play the captain and then Paul Newman was attached to play the captain before it like became an entirely German production. And I wonder if it would have impacted you in the same way in that context, if, if a big American star had played the German captain. No, I don't think so. This was maybe one of the first foreign language movies I, I went to see, but it was it was a wide release. It wasn't like just an art house film. Yeah. But it felt like a thing. It felt like a smart thing to watch, and it felt like an you know because it was. It also wasn't fun. It was wasn't ever meant to be fun. You know what I think really helps it as a foreign language film is that no one speaks in paragraphs in this movie, and I think that's one of the reasons why my German teacher was so emphatic about us watching it. It's because all of the dialogue is fairly clipped and short, and even if you don't speak a lot of German, like you could get it. Right. And I think that might have helped a, an English-speaking audience at the time. Like, you're not seeing the big, big paragraphs of dialogue. It doesn't fatigue in the same way, especially in a film that's almost three hours. Like, we've watched subtitled films that long, and it does kind of wear on you. Yeah, that's, I think, a good observation. In 1981, this felt like also kind of an unprecedented degree of realism. Like, you really smell the sweat, and you see how gross everything is and everybody is. Now watching it, I felt like it was much more of a kind of adventure film, not not quite so um, unbearably realistic. It felt like there was a lot, there was just fun, and you know, I I could watch it as a as a blockbuster rather than tell me about as a the parts you thought were fun. Well, you know, I've always kind of wanted to be on a submarine. There weren't soup croutons everywhere, so it was like markedly <laughs> yeah. less gross than <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've seen some movies that are a lot grosser. And some that do a good job of portraying reality, quote unquote, and some that like the Mel Gibson one with people's heads blowing up like cantaloupe where it's attempting <laughs> to be super real, but it's really just like super lame. Yeah. Um <laughs> it didn't hit me in the same way that it did as a kid, not because I think the movie, I think the movie absolutely holds up in every regard. It just, I'm reflecting on the fact that in 1981, it was 
it was very new and it was regarded as really edgy and i don't you know i think subsequent to it a lot of films use took from it and used a lot of these elements and now they they feel familiar i think that the model work is is really interesting too like that like obviously like the thing that is hardest about a submarine film is making it look right and like one of the things that halted like early in the development the the process was like how do we do the scene where they encounter the other german sub in the storm like it seems impossible and i guess the technology here is that the models are just really big so th- so the water looks like more plausibly to scale they messed around with frame rates too in a way that wasn't often done what does that mean when you shoot at a high frame rate and then play it back at normal frame rate it makes what was fast seems slow and especially when we're talking about water and the and the thermodynamics of water or whatever like that really helps when you're playing with models oh interesting so part of the reason that that waves or that water looks wrong is that the waves are moving too fast yeah i think for right. those water scenes they were shooting like double frame rate they were shooting at 50 and then playing back at 24 but for the depth charge explosives they were shooting at a thousand frames a second and that's what made their scale and the rate of explosion seem realistic when played back at 24 it that thought they really did a good job there huh with that technique yeah i mean it's obviously not perfect and you could you know do cg these days and make it look basically perfect but it's it's so visceral when it's real, you know, like seeing the those waves crash over the bow of the model and then cutting to the little fake con tower with the rear projection screen and seeing the guys just getting blasted in the face with a fire hose. It like, you know, like I, I, I know exactly how it was done and yet I'm experiencing the extreme discomfort of the characters being drenched in real water, you know? Ben, I thought one of the things that made the model work really effective was how little we ever saw the entire model, Uh, especially when submerged. You never get that shot of the entire submarine the way you do in a run silent, run deep, where it just looks sort of bathtubby. You're seeing sections (laughs) of it, or or you're never seeing it in profile. Like We get a lot of shots of the submarine coming straight at the camera, and I think that really helps solve for the riddle of how you depict a model submarine and not make it look cheesy. Like it's, it's withholding a lot of the detail. Yeah. There were a few scenes where I picked up on the fact that the waves were the wrong scale and so knew it was a model, but a few of those going out to sea shots, I was fooled. I was like, where did they get a submarine? Do you know that (laughs) this is one of the craziest stories about this movie they found the guy who built the submarine and designed it. What? And they had him build the mock-up. That was a seagoing? Yeah, Ocean-going? So, so the, the version that they, that they actually used in the water was just a hull. It was just the exterior. And then they had separate ones that they shot inside. But the ones, like, they, have, they had different scaled models. But, but the good one, the one that you're talking about, the one where they go out of the sub base into the water, was close to full scale. And it was radio controlled. Wow. And they had the guy who designed the original subs 
involved in the recreation of it because the only one I guess to survive the war in 81 was a museum piece and it was never going to be used as a shooting platform but they actually like involved the people who made the subs originally in the recreation of this sub that's the amazing thing about making a World War II movie in 1980. Yeah, that that's still, still it's just possible. Like, Let's go find the guy that designed the U-boats. Yeah. And he's like living in a little <laughs> hut somewhere. Yeah. Wild. It's just the top of the ship. It's basically like a flat hull. And it was actually used in, um, in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark as well, which uh, there's kind of a confusing anecdote about that on Wikipedia that they like showed up to shoot with it one day and it was gone. And that's because Steven Spielberg had like rented it. I don't understand how you like build something for your own movie and then are surprised to discover that Steven Spielberg has rented it. <laughs> well, Steve, you, you know, never be surprised when Steven Spielberg does something, right? No one expects the Spielberg. Uh, he didn't show the sub <laughs> until the very end of that movie. Also, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's that was his early genius, you know. If you think about Raiders and this movie being contemporaries. Made at the same time. Bold contrast to, to see what a... I mean, this movie still feels very contemporary, right? If Das Boat came out today, you wouldn't look at it and say... I mean, all you would notice is the lack of CGI and maybe the lack of Ben Affleck. But that would be like such a stylish move at this point. You know, people would be like, wow, cool. I can't believe they did that. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's still... I mean, I guess if Raiders came out today, you'd be pretty excited about that too. Although you'd wonder what the comic book tie-in was, like, God, like <laughs> imagine if Mel Gibson directed Raiders today, what what the arc opening scene would look like at the end. <laughs> it would be forty minutes of <laughs> heads exploding, yeah. <laughs> Jesus standing there. Oh yeah, you know Jesus would be there for sure. sure. Oh, there are a lot of tropes in this movie that we've seen in submarine movies going back to the very first submarine movies we watched some of them even set in the war you know i struggled with it just in the sense that maybe submarine warfare is just a trope salad just by definition how many things can possibly happen to you on a submarine it must be duplicated by every submariner every time the, the bolts are popping. We didn't get a seal right. them inside the flooded compartment scene, though. We waited for it, right? Yeah. The, the, that, the whole end of the film when the engineer is running back trying to... Yeah. And he's just like, I've just got two more things. And it's like, oh, here's where he gets crushed by a piece of machinery held underwater and screams out, close the door! There's Sacrifice tension in me. what you don't show in a movie like this. That was an example of that, right? Yeah, really. You think it's going to happen. Really, uh, that was that was a that was a trope that that I felt like I got played. Yeah, all those batteries and stuff. Weren't you expecting an electrocution? Yeah, something didn't happen. Yeah, almost all the death takes place like in the last like thirty seconds of the movie. <laughs> That's part of the tragedy, right? Like you you survive the mission and you're strafed by a plane. That's so messed up feeling. I know, really messed up. I mean, but if you're going to get strafed by a plane, you want a brass band playing for you while it happens. I feel like when I saw this in the theaters, by the time we got to that end, I was already, I, I was so overwhelmed that I don't really remember that, that concluding moment. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. I would just need to pee so bad at that point that I would not be like <laughs> registering reality 
in my memory box. I'm not sure whether that's something that was really augmented in the three and a half hour cut that maybe in the theatrical cut was wasn't there or didn't play such a large role because I I remember a lot about the movie. I mean, it's it's an indelible memory sitting in that theater and hearing that. Yeah. It's like, nah, but I don't remember everybody (laughs) dying at the end. So yeah. so strange, and and I think in I think in the context of the film, it's the scene that maybe plays the least well. But I also sort of felt like I don't know the the third act running the Gibraltar line and spending that time on the bottom. It did start to it did start to feel more like a fictional adventure movie and less like the first two thirds, which is in a little bit of a way plotless, right? There's no, there's no plot. It's just the submarine went out and is fighting the battle of the Atlantic. And then at the end there starts to pile on all these different, like, Oh, now they're caught on the bottom and now they're, you know, like running the straits and all this, all this stuff that just felt a little bit, I mean, not, it doesn't ruin the movie at all, but, Felt a little drummed up. It does pivot into disaster movie in a fun way. Yeah. Like like a Poseidon adventure sort of way. <laughs> yeah. Which is fun because Wolfgang Peterson went on to direct a Poseidon adventure remake. Really? In the in the mid two thousands. Which is also too bad because Wolfgang Peterson feels like he should be one of our most treasured directors, right? And you look at his IMDB and there's some really fun good movies in it. But it seems like he should be working more. If he doesn't want to work that much, I get it. And I don't want to work that much. I heard I, that. I, I feel you, Wolfgang Peterson. But at a time when it is difficult to go see something original in the movie theater, it feels like he is he could be capable of delivering something good and interesting, something that, that's worth looking forward to. And uh, it's too bad. He's not making more. Oh, well, I think after he did Air Force One... I feel like he probably got run out of Hollywood, right? Oh, he did the perfect. What are you storm. talking about? That's a great movie. <laughs> Troy's gonna be on the list. Can watch Troy. Troy, the movie you confused with Alexander about ten different times. Oh, Troy! Outbreak is a great pork chop movie. <laughs> yeah, it's the military fighting a disease. Oh yeah, I remember that movie too. I mean, none of these are really standing out to me as like the great films of the. 20th century. Like we all love Hams im Gluck. <laughs> Never ending story? Come on. These are the great films. What are you talking about? Never ending story is like a kid's movie, right? It's His got a dragon. DP on this was the Never Ending Story DP. Like he worked on a ton of Wolfgang films together. I think Air Force One was one of them. Like I think it's amazing to think that the enemy mine never ending story Das Boot DP is all the same person. That's just, some, just that's, me. That's some film school like over coffee conversation. Hey, meet me. You know, want to go get a cup of coffee? Talk about the director of photography for the Jurgen Peterson movies. I think what makes him special is what he demonstrates in this film. Like he's a guy that that built gimbals and gear to make moving a camera through a submarine work, because you can't just handhold a camera 
and run through all these compartments. It needs to be steadied somehow, and a steady cam was not a viable option for him in 1981. Gyroscoped, right? Yeah. The, the choreography of those uh, of those scenes, I mean, they love it, and they use it a lot of times. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. One thing that we see in this movie that I've, I've never seen in a submarine movie was every time they crash-dived, every crewman was meant to run to the bow. Including to, you, with right, the camera person. To, to like, front-load the bow to to make the crash. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I've never seen that before, and I didn't even, I guess, know that was an actual technique. And it's, like, so effective because they actually built, like, a full-size mock-up of the boat so you could run the camera down the length of it and really experience the entire space. And they never cheated with that either. Like there are no wild walls in the model. Like there's the camera is never in a place where it can't be because of how a submarine is designed. It's it's going where people go because it has to. Right. And you feel that cramped the total lack of space. It's beyond claustrophobia. Yeah. It's to the point that you could not be on that boat without actually being in physical contact with another person for most of the time that you're on the boat. Even if you're just standing somewhere, there's someone standing touching you because there's just not room. I really like how not flashy that stuff is too, you know? Like you could be flashy and try to do it all in one going through every single compartment from the bow to the stern or whatever. But and and hide edits from people like walking in front of the camera and picking it back up again but it's never that tricky you're only ever going one or two compartments at a time and there's so much action happening in front of the camera to sort of evoke the feeling of transition that isn't there it doesn't call attention to itself in a way i think a modern film and director would that's another thing that's really interesting about this movie is that they shot it over the course of like two years basically in order so that these actors, as their bodies decay from being cramped in this shitty tube of of farts with each other for an entire, you know, for 12 months at a time, like their beards are growing in and they are looking less and less healthy because 
their beards are growing in and they're getting less and less healthy. Why would it take so long to make this movie? Aren't most movie shoots like a month? I think that was the idea, though. Like, you want to affect the grizzle on people. You want to actually have their beards grow. Yeah, but can... Like, what filmmaker can afford to say, like, all right, block out two years of your life and you're going to live in a cardboard tube on the edge of a dock? It's Germany. That is a... Yeah. I feel like they might, they must have had like some special arrangement with this movie because it like you don't set out to make the the four hour epic and and you know do a bunch of half measures on it so right I feel like if you if you know what you're getting into you can kind of sell it to all the participants as that but boy if you if Robert Redford was starring in it you sure wouldn't get him living in a living on a set for two years right <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want you to see the sun, Rob, because we want to want to make sure your skin gets all waxy. What's the most grizzled Redford's ever been in a movie? Did you see that one where it was just him on a sailboat? All is lost. Yeah, it's pretty grizzled. The old man in the gun. He is pretty grizzled as well. I just have a hard time believing that he would ever grizzle himself to the degree where he wouldn't still be really, really good looking. Well, that's the thing. He's so good looking. He, as an actor, keeps trying to grizzle himself. He shines through the grizzle. But he can't. Yeah. He can't. You can. You could beat him with a two-by-four, and he'd still be like, wow. Commandos still at his borders, huh? What about the, all the lime-eating in this movie? I was under the impression that the German Navy knew that sauerkraut had vitamin C in it, and shouldn't they prefer that since it doesn't go bad as quickly as limes? Uh, the trouble with sauerkraut is that it comes in a barrel or a glass jar configuration, uh, both of which are extremely breakable in a submarine <laughs> environment. And so you guys are blowing my mind here. And so I think that's the reason the container for the vitamin has got to be able to be dropped or thrown around or whatever. And then not stink up the place. Or spilled on the floor in many scenes. I think that's got to be it. Your lime and your lemon uh, can roll around right. and not be destructive the way that uh, a pickle barrel is going to be. Well, plus, if you put the lime in These the These guys cup. really give oh, Denzel yeah. a run for his money in terms of citrus eating uh, That was style. very fun. Yeah, just nice bite straight into it. <laughs> Eat it like an apple. Yeah. I, I found a moment of pedantry about some of the fruit in this movie. Uh, uh, there was a fruit pedant that uh, took to IMDb to register this complaint. On the Vesser, the captain says he has never had fresh figs before, but he demonstrates the correct technique of opening one to get at the flesh inside. However, throughout the movie, he proves to be a wise person who can figure out fast the best way to eat the fruit. (laughs) Throughout the movie, he does show that he can figure out the way to eat the fruit. I love that, you know, speaking of the captain and food, there is a really fun scene where they're on the bottom and shit is bad and people are either breathing through their rebreathers or, uh, or, or the engineer's back whacking on his engine. It looks like he's just sitting down to a wedge of cheese yeah, alone does. in the mess, right? He has a little wedge of cheese, doesn't he? I love that scene. Yeah. That's fun. Well, there's nothing for him to do. Yeah, Exactly. And so why not and have a wedge of cheese? cheese? Yeah. Eat eat it. <laughs> eat it while you can. It's like John Hammond eating the ice cream when uh, when all the power goes out at Jurassic Park, you know? That whole bit of the movie where you realize they have one shot to get off the bottom and they have 
not forever to figure out, you know, to fix all the problems to give themselves the best possible shot. You know they're going to make it because otherwise there's no movie, right? They, the, this movie is definitely <laughs> not going to end with them all just dying of CO2 poisoning. That would be pretty exciting. <laughs> I mean, that'd be a hell of a film, right? Where we just watch each <laughs> guy slowly expire until the last person is yeah. sucking on the dregs of his rebreather. <laughs> yeah. But that feeling of like, well, we're, we only have one chance to blow these tanks and have we gotten every possible advantage? What happens if we blow these tanks and nothing happens? Like then we're just staring at each other. Like yeah. we're not, we're not dead, but we're dead men walking. And then what do you do? I mean, do you just, I guess you just eat all the cheese at that point. Do you think there are cyanide capsules on the U-boat? No. Do you think that the, that the Uber Nazi is the only one that has one? Probably. I mean, mm. you're supposed to you're supposed to blow up the Enigma machine. Yeah. He's probably got a jalapeno cyanide capsule since he's from Mexico. They like Lame. it a little spicy. Lame. <laughs> Maybe he'll take that uh, <laughs> that cyanide capsule down with a plate of frijoles. Flame. <laughs> they could suicide, right? They could do something, whatever it is, yeah. some some pressure change that would cause the sub to just implode or or be flooded. Oof. Um, but Man. would you do that rather than just like Wouldn't okay, you everybody just go to sleep? Yeah, just go to your bunks and yeah, high fives all around. And you're laying there in your bunk, and you're like, I've still got fucking crabs. Why can they survive? <laughs> John, you've had crabs before. Is it hard to sleep? I've I've had scabies, and let me tell you, it is hard to sleep. It's really hard to think about anything else. Crabs, somehow I avoided. I don't know. I danced around them. Yeah. Yeah. You're no stranger to a shave down. Well, that's the thing. Not mine, though. (laughs) (laughs) Don't darken the door of my bedchamber covered in your animal hair. Ew. Yeah, I have a shave room. Right outside the bat, the bathroom. There are not a lot of things that aren't making life more uncomfortable for these guys. I mean, like the weather is shitty, the the proximity, the the amount of CO two in the air. Like it's another one of these war films where we don't really get to look at the enemy, and it winds up being that the enemy is just like everything. Yeah, right. And the the even those scenes when they're up on the surface. They're two weeks into a storm that never yeah. abates. And you can see, and I thought it was gr- great in this movie, you can see where even the sea dogs are ready to barf. Yeah. And they're just like, anything but this, please. And what's crazy about a submarine is you go underwater and you're relieved of right. the waves and the crazy, you know, but you don't want to be underwater anymore either. Like, yeah. Like there was that scene of resignation where like they wanted to be topside. They wanted to get some air and then like, ah, fine. Fuck. Fuck dive. Yeah. (laughs) It made those scenes of total calm and peace. I don't know whether there were sunrises or sunsets, but really beautiful compositions of when the U-boat is topside and cruising in those very few moments where the weather was calm it felt very good and peaceful yeah because so much of the rest of the film is not either of those things the character that breaks johan says that he's been on nine deployments and that was a really interesting because i feel like we've seen guys that like 
you know, go into battle for their first time and discover that they are not equal to those challenges before. But this guy is like, it's, it's literally like the straw that broke the camel's back kind of a thing where he's, he's done it a million times before. And, and this particular engagement was the one that, that caused him to lose it. It's weird how they treat him as though they're surprised. Like, I would have wondered if there is eventually a fail rate due to numbers of missions. And they'll like, wow, you made it You made it past nine. That's incredible. But his captain treats him as though nine means it's never going to happen. Nine means you're never seasick. And that's not how it works. And this is the thing that you, you got with all of the 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 bombing missions right where you're meant to you're supposed to do 25 yeah um right and uh and you know 22 in you're just like look i'm I'm, i mean it's basically the plot of catch 22 which we haven't watched yet but i think it was not that he lost his his mind but that he actually made a move to the ladder he went to the conning tower and was like get me out and when the captain went to get his pistol, he wasn't kidding, right? And and the, everybody else grabbed him and like hustled him off because the next thing was going to be that that he got shot. So it was jeopard. He was jeopardizing the whole boat. He was always the most spiritual of the crew people, also due to his relationship to the diesel motor. Like he was, like that was his kitchen, and he was treating it like a living being, and his his prescriptions towards the mission were very different from anyone else's on the boat, I think. And I think that always made him liable to snap in a way that maybe others might not. I don't know. Like if I had, like as the movie was starting, if I had to guess about the guy to snap, he, he would have been my first pick for that reason. Good. Well, and also cause he was the waxiest going in. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think super wax. Nobody has ever seemed less credible when they said this won't happen again. I'm, I'm good to go from here. Although, you know, although he that, he redeemed himself, he absolutely did. And I think that that's such an interesting thing about this movie. Like you got all these characters who have who are you know heavily characterized in the beginning, and specifically you've got the the most Nazi-ish Nazi, but also like you know everybody is given is given some elements to their character, and and at a certain point like. Other movies would have chosen to make the Nazi-ish Nazi the problem that they all have to deal with or the villain of the movie or something. But that guy sort of fades into the tapestry of the crew in a way where it's like almost irrelevant what a Nazi he is. Like he's just the one guy who's keeping clean shaven at a certain point. I really love that point. Like no one becomes a liability because of what their character trait is. And that's another version of tension. I feel like that, like it's a setup without a payoff that right. you're the, expecting. The, the the only one is the is the uh, the mechanic, right? Yeah. The, the uh, and his setup and payoff is just that he's so capable, right? Legendarily capable. And he ends up and he ends up saving the day, or partly saving the day at the end. Yeah. But you're right, Ben. There's no yeah. He and the chief engineer are the dudes that that get it done. Right. There's no villain. That felt very real, and like I was saying before, that felt uh, when this movie came out like a um, like a super novel approach to a war movie that that uh, that featured Germans was to not ever scapegoat somebody as the as the evil German 
you know, there's a lot of anti-Nazi talk in the movie in, in the sense that the captain and the, and his drunk fellow captain and most of the crew, they seem either anti-Nazi or ambivalent, ambivalent about it. There's a certain amount of whitewashing that happens like Nazi washing. <laughs> um, with the only time we're ever, is it a, a tab open? No, yeah. No, Nazi washing, <laughs> washing bear. We will make you clean. <laughs> We will make us clean. <laughs> it's part of the Helga series of, of films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but the only time we ever hear about Hitler or Goering or the war in general, the Nazi leadership is derided, scoffed at. Very crucially, at the, at the, in the final scene, when the sub comes into port in, in its birth in Italy... And they're welcomed there at the at the uh, dry dock. They are flying the naval standard at the back of the boat, and it is a flag with a swastika. But you can see that they have taped it so that even though there's a there's a breeze, the flag never fully unfurls. You can get you get a scent. You see that there's a swastika on this flag, and that felt like super intentional. Because to see the swastika there at the end would cause us as viewers to go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, hold on. The here our heroes this whole time have been Nazis. But right. to have pa- <laughs> to have paper clipped it also feels a little bit Right. Is is that meant to be the crew that did that, or is that the filmmaker not wanting the moment of relief to have a swastika in it for the flag to be fully displayed would be a moment of triumph that undercuts several of the scenes that come before that in this film in which we like starting with the very first one that toast that thompson makes where he starts cutting in to nazi leadership before bailing there's there's how everyone makes fun of the one He's Nazi. roasting Hitler. Yeah. yeah. Everyone makes fun of the one <laughs> Nazi crew person on the ship. Like uh they refuse to see Heil uh when they come to Spain. I was just gonna there. say that scene on the on the Vesser where it's it's Nazi leadership there just acting the fucking fool, like like fanboying these guys, not getting it at all. Um to unfurl the flag entirely at the end, I think does a disservice to all of the work that they did up to that point. It's a kind of self-flattery to the Germans that were making it, to the German audience watching it in 1981, to the American audience. It's a little bit of like, no, I mean, it's the old, these are the good Nazis. It's not all Nazis. Argument, yeah. Yeah. And, And boy, how many of these submarine movies have we seen? And oftentimes it is the submarine movie where the captain is impolitic once he's on his his own boat he can say whatever he wants about the nazis what was the what was the william holden one is that the enemy below the enemy below right the captain there was also expressed a lot of doubt and his first officer who was the most naziest naziish member of his crew was a joke right well it's and hunt for red october it's the same thing right and th- this is part of the confusion that we all experienced in the 80s was like now wait are the russians the nazis or or what <laughs> are the russians the nazis it's a question that we don't ask ourselves often enough well you know these days it's come back around hasn't it a different way it sure has yeah I must break you. historians in 
in writing about this movie have mentioned that the U-boat Navy was among the least pro-Nazi branches of the German military. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, we, we, but we see that a lot too. I mean, I, I made a comment earlier on in, uh, in one of our films that the, um, that the pilots uh, in the Luftwaffe were not the most Nazi. And uh, we got some comments from people that the Air Force itself was, was super duper Nazi. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, our modern air force, the American air force uh, is, <laughs> is much more. I mean, the, the air force Academy here in the United States is famously like Christianist, super Christianist, right. What? And super war makey, super like uh, American destiny kind of Christians. And it's, it's the culture of, of color of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Yeah. Springs. It's, it's, yeah. it's mega church land that it's in mega church. And and like yeah, like if, if you're not if you like profess atheism at the Air Force Academy, it can have the effect of like putting your career in jeopardy. Right. Wow. The point I was making when I made that comment was that the old sort of aristocratic German aces typically I don't think were as imbued in the Nazi thing as but you know, it was like Goering's little personal thing. But I do think what you're saying, Adam, is true that all the way up to the top like admiral dernitz was sort of not nazi crucially sort of the navy had its own culture and there's that weird scene where we flash to that picture of admiral dernitz on the wall and we watch a fly crawl up it yeah and I and I was trying to figure out like what is the how did they direct that fly? Well, and what, like, what's the symbolism of? I mean, all you do is put some honey on a picture, right? But how how do you? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and give away all the secrets of Hollywood, Ben. But <laughs> how, how uh, what was it? What was that supposed to mean? I mean, it went and one of the characters I think it's was supposed to mean he was a piece of shit. But I don't think he was, or at least I don't think that's how it would have been. I don't think the Navy would have said that about him. He was the big, he was the big wheel. But I mean, if it was a picture of Hitler with a fly crawling on it, it would have been very obvious. Mm-hmm. But to have it be the admiral, kind of like the different accents, the Bavarian accent and the Austrian accent and the Berlin accent, which would have meant something to a German audience and we missed it because we couldn't tell the difference. Right. I wonder if that was a thing, if that was like a, a reference yeah, I, I also wondered about the significance of the it's a long way to Tipperary thing that came back a couple of times. Like, what did that mean to you guys? Because it, like, it's, it's obviously like a popular song among the crew. That's a British song though, right? Yeah. It's a long way to Tipperary if you want to rock and roll. <laughs> no? No. Okay. So are they singing it because like we're immune to the, to the appeals of of the enemy or is it we love this song and we're singing it in spite of our Nazi-ish first officer because they make him put it on right I always felt like the the use of Tipperary was that they were distinguishing themselves and their adversaries from the war in general it was a it was something that they probably did mockingly originally and then they just adopted it as a a fun 
jam a song it's because it's not a it's it's like a patriotic song but it wasn't like a war song it was actually like a sort of a music hall song yeah it seems like a bar song a bar song i think that was one of the things that that came between the captain and the sycophantic nazis on the Wasser was every time he expressed admiration for the british it was seen as unpatriotic right when when his when his Nazi crewmen was like, we're going to hand it to them. And he was like, I don't think you understand how hard this is. Um, those were seen as unpatriotic moments, but true. Right. And in, and in contrast to like the Bridget Remagen, where the, you know, like even discussing the idea that the German army is not at the strength that the leadership believes it to be is like treasonous that will get you tied to a pole and shot. Yeah. And, and especially, and I think this is something we've, that's in the movie, but, but, but a lot of it is suggested. And that is that these guys are coming off of this period of two years where they had no losses and they kicked ass every time. And now they're going out and, and you get the sense that like the last mission was harder than the one before it. And the mission before that had been hard. It's like getting harder each time they go out. But they're still they're still coasting on the feeling that they once upon a time could do no wrong, and the leaders are starting to you know the captains are starting to go like uh, we're this it's over the the good days are gone, and so maybe Tipperary was originally a mocking song that they sang as they sank boat after boat, and now it's taking on a quality that's more and more ironic. Hmm. It feels that way, like when they sing it, like they're, the reason I brought it up is, is I think that I was expecting it to be like, hey, we're making the Nazi put on this, this British song as a fuck you to him, but he doesn't, he doesn't seem to do it in, under protest. And, and then when you cut around the ship to the crew all singing it, it's like, it feels kind of desperate in the same way as their, as their hula party, where it's like, fuck, like we, we have nothing you know, nothing between us and death. We might as well just be like as silly as possible. Well, because you don't get the sense any of the German music they play is irreverent or fun. It's all sentimental and romantic. Yeah. From what I'm reading, it says, It's a Long Way to Tipperary was the official song of the First World War. I, I didn't know that this, the First World War had an official song. It was on uh, So That's What You Call <laughs> World War One Music. <laughs> the very first disc. <laughs> Maybe it's just comforting to sing a song that reminds you of of great victories when it was a lot easier. Maybe that's all it is. Well, you know, the Nazis came out against jazz as being a, a degenerate music of the dark people and American Jews. And so in coming out against jazz in 1937, you're really against fun. <laughs> right? Like what... A, what else are you going to do? You can't, you, you can't do the Charleston. You can't Lindy hop. What can you listen to? If, if you take jazz away, all you have is like big sentimental ballads and lots of people like operatic throat singing. You can't steal jazz. Not from the, not from the working guy. Add that to the list of reasons to hate the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> right up there at the top. Alles klar. It's a rare movie in uh, in our experience where a commanding officer makes a 
decision that haunts him, but we don't we're not made to like lose respect for that character as a result. The moment that I think is crucial to our not losing respect for him is that he doesn't lie about it in his captain's log. Right. He writes it about it as it happened. And I think if he lied there, I think that's the moment where we lose it. I never understand that. Uh, I didn't understand it when I watched it first. I didn't understand it now. And I don't understand it whenever we see it in a war movie. Because if he hit a ship with a torpedo and the ship blew up and sank immediately, taking all hands to the bottom, (laughs) he would high five everybody, right? And so it's this strange, it's a strange war moment when you've hit a boat and the crew didn't get in their lifeboats for some reason and you watch them die and you can't save them that you feel that remorse. But earlier on in that same scene, when they're down underwater and we hear those ships breaking up and sinking, that's a freaky scene. They're underwater and they can hear, they're identifying the sounds of these giant boats. Like, and they anthropomorphize the boats too. Like their backs are breaking. Yeah. And they're, and they're drowning as, as, as they say, right. Like the boats are drowning, but it's hundreds of men that are drowning or, or, you know, floating in burning oil out in the middle of the Atlantic. Right. Those were really, those were really affecting moments. And so later on when they surface and they're all deeply moved by watching the, the, you know, what is effectively a handful of sailors still alive and they're so moved by it. I couldn't quite put that together with just the nature of, I mean, being a submarine, yeah, you can't you can't rescue anybody. <laughs> you can't rescue anybody and not only that but but unlike a lot of forms of warfare, if you sink a ship in the middle of the Atlantic, there aren't a ton of escape routes. Even if they do make it into lifeboats, they could just float out there until they all die. Right. Fucking cold water and like high seas, it's not It made me think of There's a medium famous story in the air war in Europe about a German fighter pilot who shoots up a B-17, has the opportunity to finish it off and doesn't instead like escorts it back. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting depiction of what may or may not be a fraternity of war situation where the, the captain has his line. His line might be different from that of someone else. Mm. It seemed related to that fighter pilot story in a strange way to me. Like there's, it is not this, but there seems to be an element of sport in war occasionally depicted in these films. Occasionally. And it is not sporting to shoot a defenseless ship, I guess. Well, except that that's the thing about submarine warfare, right? That they're out there just shooting unarmed tankers. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. Like a bomber crew is what? Between five and 10 people. And they have a, they're working together to accomplish a single goal, which is to go drop some bombs. But you've got machine gunners, you've got navigators. They all have a kind of a a job, right? Got a guy from Brooklyn. That's right. A Jewish guy. (laughs) If you're on an aircraft carrier or a battleship, you're working together in a in large numbers but a battleship or an aircraft carrier is doing a lot of different things they're, they're they have airplanes they're shooting cannons machine guns that you know they're 
they're doing a lot. A submarine is an interesting instrument of war because everybody on the boat is doing their job in order to do one thing, which is to send that torpedo. Right. And so when the torpedo hits the ship, I mean, the captain's making the choices, but when they sank those ships, there wasn't, you didn't get a feeling like everybody on the boat was jumping for joy. Like when a sub, when submarine warfare is going good, you're shooting fish in a barrel. And when it's not, you're either bored shitless or you're <laughs> running. Yeah. And none of those feel like kind of the sportsmanship of a dogfight. The things we know for sure are you don't shoot paratroopers in the sky. You don't strafe people in the water from a fighter plane. This seems kind you, of... You don't uh, knock the hat off old Lone Ranger. This seems related to those concepts, right? Right. Like you don't shoot a soldier as they're fleeing the thing that they've been on. Right. And it's the recognition that they've inadvertently done that that, that causes the trauma. Yeah. Is part of this the observer effect because Lieutenant Werner is there to like document the mission? I don't know. It felt port- it felt portrayed like like that would have been what they did, even if they hadn't been. Yeah, I felt that too. I just I I wondered if that was something that was there that I didn't pick up on or something. Because because he's kind of our proxy, right? Like he's the he's the outsider that they're explaining everything to and in the process explaining right. it to us there are 50 guys in one hole for all of us to shit in they're like put down the paper on the toilet seat it's how you don't get crabs <laughs> every single one of them is using an ass gasket every single day they bring thousands of them <laughs> yeah they have there's, barely enough room for fresh fruit but they have a pile of ass gaskets there's just bananas and ass gaskets hanging from ropes all over the ship <laughs> Uh, I hate this show. I hate you guys. <laughs> even even you, Adam, who who doesn't generate any strong feelings. Mm. <laughs> there was something else at play there, of course, which is that I think submarines routinely would go back to to burning hulks and dispatch them because if the ship doesn't actually sink, they don't get to count it as sunken tonnage. Hmm. You don't get the little swastika on the conning tower. That's right. You don't get to say, like, that's 8,000 more tons that go on our permanent record. Yeah. And so it, I think it was super common that a ship would be out there burning. There'd be nothing left of it. Makes a ton of sense. But that they would have to go back, and usually they would surface and shell it with a cannon, not to waste torpedoes. The real captain of U-96 was one of the consultants on this movie, and the Wikipedia article about the film refers to him as one of Germany's tonnage aces during the war. Ooh, tonnage ace. <laughs> Adam has uh, has that title, has, having sunk a lot of his own tonnage. <laughs> tonnage thick. <laughs> Big time. It took us a long time to get to this point, Ben, but you bring up the war correspondent character as our proxy, and there is some interesting stuff happening to him and with him as a way to tell his story. I think it's interesting how he's used to evoke the passage of time. Like sometimes when things get really bad, he'll just go into his bunk and then we'll wake up with him. And the thing that he's scared of will be over. I thought that was a strange, like, kind of 
ellipses effect that he had on the film and the storytelling. And it feels like cheating. Like, I feel like in a lot of movies, we would we would be with a character, they would sleep through a conflict and wake up, and we'd be like, what the fuck? Like, don't. <laughs> but it kind of works here for some reason, and he does it twice. Yeah. Well, it's three and a half hours long, and they, they did foreshorten some of the situations where probably it would have been an hour's worth of cleanup. Yeah. Where they're just... Because in some of those scenes... Every single thing on that sub falls on the floor and breaks. Tell you one thing that doesn't, though. Jar full of sauerkraut. That's right. Limes everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So we never see the scenes of the entire boat like, all right, let's clean it all up. Like, everybody pitch in. And I'm grateful that we didn't have an extra hour of that. Lieutenant Werner is also the stand-in for Lothar Gunther Buchheim, who wrote the novel that this book is adapted on and was actually like a correspondent for the German Navy and, and went on one of these, one of these cruises during the war to document it. Like his novel is like kind of a fictionalization of his own experience. And there was a, uh, not just a U 96, but there was a U 96 mission that actually did several of these exact things, went to Vega, went out and was depth charged a bunch. And I mean, I think this is the first two thirds of the movie is an accurate depiction of what was represented in the book. But the actual U 96 talking about Das book, Das book, (laughs) but the the real sub survived the war right up until like the very last days of 1945. And it was bombed and destroyed in the dock at a, at a German port in the North rather than, than in the South. In La Rochelle. Yeah. I like it when movies also exist in other movies that we've seen. And there's a moment in Dust Boot that made me think of a few of the other films that we've watched. And it's the scene where the war correspondent talks to that cadet with the French girlfriend, the pregnant French girlfriend specifically. And something in their conversation gets brought up that I wanted to throw to you specifically, John, which is... By impregnating a French fiance, uh, it's mentioned that she would be in great trouble with the French partisans at the time. What is that about? Like, given given the, the time period that this film exists in and what's going on in France at the time, what kind of danger is this girl in by having either a German boyfriend or a half-German baby in her? In early or I'm sorry in mid 1941 as opposed to you know late 1944 or 1945 it feels very different I mean the partisans in the early part of the war were just starting to get organized and there was an awful lot of collaboration at the end of the war yeah right she would have had her head shaved and marched through the streets and maybe she and her baby were you know would get killed killed it seems like something that you could conceal though. Like how does how do you get in trouble for that? Oh, if you're in the if you're in the resistance, you know who the collaborators are. Okay. But in 1941, it feels like the German the occupying Germans, the the Vichy folks would have had a bit a better lockdown on on what was going on and there and everybody was collaborating or a lot of people were. This cadet was collaborating with, yeah, with she, her. She was collaborating with him. It seemed almost like he should have 
invited her to go back to his little town in Germany. I mean, that was probably his plan. It's so hard to get inside their minds in 41 because there were a lot of people that still really believed that the Germans were unstoppable on their way to running the world. Yeah. And I, at that moment in the film, I, I definitely kind of sat with it for a second and tried to imagine what danger she was in and what that would have looked like. Yeah. The partisans had a lot bigger fish to fry than some teenage <laughs> girl with a half German baby. And there were a lot fewer of them and their resources weren't organized yet. So I don't know. That may have been a little artistic license. It was interesting to me that we get so few examples of the danger back home, the people that the crew left behind, and for that to be one of the main ones. I mean, if you think about the world depicted in Army of Shadows, that is precisely the the world that he's saying she's in jeopardy. And looking at Army of Shadows, I mean, they were just trying to keep their powder dry for most of They were just trying to figure out, like, they were hiding in barbershops, you know? And right. I think that was a pretty accurate depiction of what was happening. Like the key, like where it feels like they're just being overwhelmed and and destroyed relentlessly by the Germans in that movie. And this is like the exact same time and the exact same place just from the other side. I think that that's kind of what I really connected to on this watch through. If you were to make a movie about the Iraq war uh, from an Iraqi standpoint, the uh, the American army would seem pretty invincible. But boy, we've sure seen a lot of American-made movies about the Iraq war where our soldiers are depicted as being in constant jeopardy. It's It must be that war is dangerous. Mm, that's a hell of a film paper, John. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I'm still w- uh, w- workshopping it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, podcasting, we've learned in this episode, is also pretty dangerous. Yeah, I'll say. If you are a filmmaker, you also get reviewed and rated on Friendly Fire. It's the rule. Oh, yeah. And, and you could get destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if the rating system is electric shocks, <laughs> which it will not be when we rate the film Das Boot. A rating system is constructed from an object in the film on Friendly Fire, and this submarine is full of objects. The submarine is an object, even. But there is one object that I think is perfect for our rating system, and that is you see so much food throughout the movie, and it's one of the technologies used to demonstrate the passage of time, along with the growing of the beards, the growing uncleanliness of the boat, the growing population of crabs. <laughs> but it's, it's the spoilage of the spoilable food you get the effect of all the time. And I was shocked to see so many loaves of bread Hmm. Mm -hmm. on the boat. Bread being... A lot of stale bread later. For its caloric number is just really big. It doesn't seem like a very efficient way to get your crew calories, I think, and especially considering how fast it may spoil in probably a fairly humid environment. Check the Max Fun Store for our new t-shirt. Bread is big. There's one kind of bread on the boat that I think is great. And I don't know who the crew person is that hung it up, but you've got basically uh, hammocks filled with bread loaves and produce and whatever. But but toward the end, when things get bad and you're like hacking off moldy pieces of bread, you're left with these these bread stones in the middle. And one of them is hung up 
like a like a soap on a rope and it's in the background of so many scenes and it's this blue soap on a rope bread and it's just swinging in a scene are you sure that's not a sponge well while it is fun to argue what the object may be really been <laughs> the object <laughs> that i'm using as the rating system for this movie is what i'm calling it and what i'm calling it is a moldy bread on a rope moldy mm. bread on a rope so from one to five moldy breads on ropes, it will be... I'm going to scrub through. You're, I mean, you're welcome to, to dispute it, Ben, but that's what it's going to be. That's the rating system. <laughs> Were this a different kind of show where Benjamin R. Harrison designed the rating system... Or could contest it in any way. Right. But or it, even it, augment it. With, but it just can't be. Uh, Were we're this the kind of rating system where we're basing it on actual things in the movie rather than things Adam yeah. thought he saw in the movie? That's, that sounds like a terribly uninteresting show that no one would listen to. <laughs> das Boot is legendary for being, for being the Ur-Submarine film, even though it is not the first one ever made. It popularized many of the things that we love in submarine films that came later. But in rewatching it this time, the thing that I loved most about it was how restrained I found it in not giving us all of the tropes of a submarine film and not being super flashy in its composition or technique. Like this time, the thing that I thought most was how many different ways can you light a submarine cabin? And there are 20 different ways, both in the color of the lights and in a foreground background composition. Like you're getting so many different looks in an environment where I feel like if you are scouting your location and figuring out how to compose your shots with your actors. I don't know how you get this many of them out of your location. And I think it is an incredible film in that regard. Every single scene keeps your interest visually. And I think it's magical in that way. I think it's one of the best war films, but for reasons that I think are different than the ones that you might use to love a war film ordinarily. I think this gets the full five swinging breads. It's the standard. It's the standard submarine film to which all others are measured. And I think that's going to get you the full review, the full rating. It's great. I'm, it had been 15 years since I've seen this film and it holds up. It may not hold up if you're watching the six hour version. I want to be clear. <laughs> This is the three-hour and 30-minute version we're talking about. I also really like the movie. I uh, also think it holds up. It's a weird feeling every week. You know, we will often watch and review two movies in two days uh, just based on our record schedule. And sometimes I can feel really onerous, like, oh, God, like I have two two-plus-hour movies about brutal harrowing shit happening that I have to digest in the next 48 hours. So we we took it easy on ourselves this week to to just do one. And I got to say like this this movie moves. It's it's a it's a really tight three and a half hours and I don't think there's any part of it that I would drop, you know? Like I think that I think that the length is in service of something that the movie is doing emotionally. For us as viewers, I think it's brilliantly cast, brilliantly acted. I read that the author of the novel upon which this is based hates the movie and thinks it's kind of a 
American action movie and, and lost all of its uh, horrors of war elements that uh, that he put in the novel. And I really, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm too much of an American to see the the difference. And I have not read the novel, so I uh, can't make a uh, comparison to that. But um, you know, watching the bad guys go through this in service of a thing that most of them don't even necessarily really believe in uh, was a powerful experience for me. And the the moments between Lieutenant Werner and the captain uh, where they're feeling that despair, you know, especially in the in the uh, the long time that they spend deep under underwater near Gibraltar really drove that that part of the film home for me. And I think it's it's as uh, as much a part of the film for me as uh, as anything else. And um I don't really understand that criticism. Uh, so I guess I'm going to give it five hanging sponges. He's trying to backdoor his sponge argument in he's, there. He's trying to pull a John Roderick where he applies this, a weird eccentricity to the, to the rating system. I'm not trying. But where John does it and it's charming and interesting. <laughs> wow, Adam is sad. I'm going to give it two breads, Ben's, two Ben's, sponges. Ben's just being argumentative. Adam's little fifis are so hurt that he was wrong about that about that sponge. <laughs> I don't I don't care enough to correct someone else for such a thing. That that just makes you pedantic. But it is your birthday, and I need to be nice to you, Ben. Oh, happy birthday, Ben! <laughs> happy birthday, Ben! It's not my birthday when this comes out. <laughs> my birthday's long past by the t- this. It's 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 basically. Christmas and how how fitting we that could the, all be dead by the time this episode yeah. comes out. How how fitting that the U boat returns to La Rochelle on Christmas Eve in this movie. Is this our Christmas episode? It is basically. Wow, fun. Is Das Boot a Christmas movie? I think so. Wow, it is. Good job, you guys. Yeah. Good job, hundred and twenty <laughs> sided die. Yeah, it was. It wasn't really. We didn't have anything to do with the selection of this one. This was no Torah, Torah, Torah. Uh, having seen this in the theater and having carried the the experience of watching it as a as an impressionable young person with me my whole life as one of the like emblematic war movies and one of the first instances of both sides that I'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, he really fell in love with that as a as a thought technology. <laughs> it be, it really became my whole motif, my light motif. But it was um, for me like the maybe the first time I had considered that the enemy was real people, and the Russians loved their children too. Then when that sting song came out, I was ready. I was I was primed to believe that the Russians probably did love their children, although <laughs> I wasn't a hundred percent sold the movie just maintains such a great tension the the acting the characters are all so believable so so well acted so real it never it never succumbs to cliche until the very end of the movie and i just feel like the denouement when they arrive in port finally are greeted as heroes and then strafed that it's a, it's just a little bit too neat 
And I think if I can sympathize with the author of the book where so much of what happens in this movie was real, was, was accurately depicted, emotionally affecting as a result, that it didn't need it. It didn't need the soap opera at the end. It didn't need the, I mean, the last scene in the movie, the captain watches his boat sink in dock and then dies. And the reporter crouches over him and all but raises his hands to the sky and says, no, <laughs> as the camera slow pans up and back. Well, it wasn't raining, so he, the mood didn't strike him. <laughs> you know, and it was just like, and then it should have had a little a little uh, title card that said, and the Germans went on to lose the war. <laughs> so, th- so that... The untouchable stairway scene of like yeah, a, right. a barrel of sauerkraut slowly. <laughs> boom, 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 with a baby crying in the background. Uh, that only takes away like a half of a loaf of blue bread. Um, and, you know, I've given five stars to some movies that had flaws. And so I do that with a lot of reservation because this movie is largely perfect but the but the the neatness of the ending and the fact that I feel like it was unnecessary um I almost would have rather seen them all die of CO2 poisoning especially given that that's that it's a complete it's a complete movie maker fiction only on friendly fire can the hosts argue the preferred way to see their characters die at the end <laughs> look they're all going to die what a great genre. I want them to die in a whorehouse like German submariners <laughs> truly did. Yeah. Suffocated by crabs. We've yet to see a submarine movie where the boat sinks to the bottom, is being depth charged, and then actually is crushed <laughs> by the pressure and everybody dies. And I really want it now. Like we've seen it so many times. Just give it to us one time. Everybody dies. For that reason, four and a half blue loaves. Loaves on a rope. Pretty big score for Das Boot. Yeah. Well, that leaves the last question. The question before the question. The last question is going to be what movie we watch next. The question before that is, who's your guy, Ben? Uh, I guess my guy is uh, Fanrich. I don't know how to pronounce German stuff. Uh, He was the cadet whose uh, girlfriend was back home and uh, wanted to get a packet of mail out to her via lieutenant Werner, but uh but could not uh i thought the i I don't know i just i really liked his character lovelorn how about you adam the thing i thought the most about in watching this film was just uh how much i crave my alone time i need it i don't like being around people a lot and how difficult it must be to have it in an environment like this. But the one man who gets it more than the captain, more than anyone else, is the sonarman. He gets the sonar closet. He gets to be more or less by himself, clutching his cans to his ear, and and he gets to be left alone even because the crew needs to respect his space and the sounds that are around him in that space. And if I'm going to be one person on a sub, I think I've got to be the sonarman. Because you get your own closet. And that's got to be okay, right? So uh, so Hinrich, the sonarman, slash medic, because uh, on a submarine, you need to 
have a couple of different specialties. Yeah, he was the he he did a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. Yeah, listening and medi- medi- medicamenting. Yeah, he was he was good with the medicaments. He's my guy. I loved that uh, you, that that just crowd of dudes taking a look at that guy's dick <laughs> in the uh, in the crowd. Everybody b- bending in. Yeah, no no uh, no concession made to privacy in that moment. I thought that was going to be a laugh at the guy's big slash little dick scene, but it was a it was a laugh at his crab scene. Well, and also, if a young guy has got that many crabs, what do you do? Mock him? Celebrate him? What's his what's his call sign? If you have that many crabs, you know you have crabs. So why are you asking your doctor if you have crabs? I don't know if you know you have crabs. A lot of times with the infestations, Adam, you just know something's not right. Hmm. You're like, what's going on with me? Why do I feel? But a lot of times all you need is an antihistamine. Yeah. Oh, is that what that powder was that was uh, <laughs> administered to him? That, that was the medicament? You're just having, a, you're just having an allergic reaction. Hmm. Uh, my guy appears very early in the movie. And because everyone later grows beards, it's really not clear to me whether my guy is actually on our boat or whether he's on a different boat. But he appears at the at the party, at the big uh, bordello party, when things really start to get out of hand. And he just shows up with a pistol in his hand yeah. and just starts <laughs> walking through the bar, shooting up the place, like saying some random stuff. And it does not close the party down. <laughs> it does not. No one even grabs him and tells him to stop. But as he walks through the dance hall, he shoots at a fresco that's on the back wall of, a, of some naked ladies. And <laughs> in drunkenly staggering through a crowd and appearing to shoot wildly, he bullseyes both the nipples and the pubic area of the uh, mural that is probably 50 feet from him. <laughs> and I'm like... Who is that genius? <laughs> and like nobody stops him because clearly he's an incredible marksman. But also like, what kind of great party is this? A lot of times you'll see a guy in a war movie pull a gun out drunkenly in a bar and his friends all wrestle him to the ground. Right. Or at least somebody says like, hey, put the gun away. Is this what a good guy with a gun is? I guess so. <laughs> huh. I was like, if I ever had an ambition, wow, it would be... Not just to be that guy, because he's also tall. I was talking about how much I love the restraint of this film. The restraint of not cutting to a guy at a at a cocktail, like, whoa, that was amazing. (laughs) But 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 this character, not only could he accomplish this amazing feat, but clearly he was held in such high esteem that no one, no other officer intervened. They were like, ah, that's just Henrik being Henrik. Yeah, and they've seen this boy, before. I, no monocles are yeah. falling into martinis here. They're not surprised by this. No, we are. We're not in jeopardy because he can hit, he can hit a nipple on a on a mural at sixty feet from like <laughs> like off balance, drunk out of his mind. Somebody make that man a deck gunner. So I've got a question. What is more impressive to you, the guy with the artillery and crash dive? that hits the submarine from five miles away on its way out of the, out of the Harbor or drunk guy with a pistol shooting at the fresco. (laughs) 
I feel like both scenes should be celebrated in the same way. I they think. should. There should be a supercut of all the great, the impossible shots. But I feel like being able to wield a pistol drunkenly in a bar and not get tackled is a better life skill yeah. than being able to hit a submarine from an impossible distance with one howitzer shell. It's a little more believable too, story-wise. I don't think he mi- he made he hit all those targets. Uh, I don't think that was unintentional on the part of the filmmakers. They were trying to really com- communicate a scene. I just wish that I'd gone and looked at his face and figured out like is that somebody we also know from the rest of the film (laughs) i think it's hilarious to consider the social consequences of each person's story too because if you're at a bar trying to drink for free and you're telling a war story artillery guy is drinking for free guy with the gun in a bar is like people are backing away from him and probably not wanting you to stay and drink right right artillery guy will always drink for free though yeah that's the friendly fire Guarantee. Artillery <laughs> drinks for free. <laughs> what will your 120-sided die say about who's drinking for free in our next film? All right, well, let me set up my little die corral, and we'll give it a whirl. Fifty-seven. Number fifty-seven. Fifty-seven is another World War II film and uh, another bridge movie set in the Netherlands from 1977, directed by Richard Attenborough. It's A Bridge Too Far. Wow, A Bridge Too Far, A Bridge Too Far. Another great. We're getting some greats stacked up here. Yeah. Yeah, and that's our third World War II film in a row, so that will be uh, the last for a little while. All right, a bridge too far. I hope that I still enjoy it like I did when I was young. (laughs) Well, uh, looking forward to that next week. In the meantime, we'll let Rob's take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly pork chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.